Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. I'm Catherine Bliss, a senior fellow with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center, where I direct work on immunizations and health systems resilience. It's my pleasure today to speak with Dan Jorgensen, Minister for Development Cooperation and Global Climate Policy in Denmark. Now, prior to taking on this role, Minister Jorgensen served until last December as the Minister for Climate, Energy, and Utilities. And from 2012 to 2015, he served as Minister for Food, Agriculture, and Fisheries. Now, Minister Jorgensen has been in Washington, D.C. this week for the World Bank Spring Meetings, where climate change has really been top of the agenda. And on top of the usual formal meetings and negotiations, he's been busy speaking at public panels and roundtables around town on a wide variety of topics, including climate and education, the importance of ensuring gender equity in climate adaptation initiatives, and the ways in which climate change influences the challenge of antimicrobial resistance. So today, we'll talk about the intersection of climate change, international development, and global health, and discuss the kinds of partnerships and alliances that make the most sense for addressing these complicated and interconnected problems. So, Minister Jorgensen, I know that you have your own podcast uh, series on <laughs> some do, of these I issues. Uh, so I really appreciate your joining me today as the, the interviewee. Um, but I look forward to our conversation. Welcome Thank to you. the Common Health. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start out just asking you about this week. I mean, Washington has been yeah. crazy with crowds and people here for the spring meetings. And, you know, just to ask you how the meetings have gone so far and what really have been some of the highlights for you and your team as you've been here in Washington. Yeah, so I I, I do think that it's been a, a fruitful week in the sense that we have had a lot of very important discussions on how to reform the World Bank as to better reflect the challenges that we face. Now, the World Bank has for decades focused on the eradication of poverty, which is obviously important and which will continue to be important. But in today's world and certainly in the future, it really doesn't make any sense to look at the fight against climate change and the fight against poverty as two different challenges. They are the same. They are two sides of the same coin. And I think that uh, what the discussions this week in Washington has showed is that a consensus is building, that we do indeed need to face these challenges in a holistic way, so that when, for instance, an institution like the World Bank acts as an financial uh, actor on the global stage, it needs to take into consideration that there's no real tangible way of solving for most countries, their development issues, 
if you don't also have an eye for the challenges that they face because of climate change. So it sounds like, you know, with development and climate policy really coming together at the bank, you know, that reflects or is aligns very closely with, with your new role in development and climate policy. Yes. So the prime minister decided when we formed our new government uh, to create a new portfolio, which is making me responsible for both development uh, cooperation and global climate policy. And I think it's a good decision because it reflects the reality of the world today. Climate change is here. This is probably the most important thing we need to realize. It's not something that might happen in the distant future. Sure, it will be much worse if we don't manage to prevent it, but it is already here. And for many countries on the planet, especially in the global south and especially the least developed ones, they see it as a part of the huge problems that they are already facing. So what climate change does, whether it's in the form of extreme weather phenomena, droughts, uh, floodings, is that it multiplies the problems and challenges that many of these countries are already facing. And my new role in the Danish government is to then also make sure that we don't only accept and acknowledge and, and analyze how these things are interconnected, that our solutions are also holistic. And therefore, of course, it's been for me very satisfying to see that that is also the main focus of many, many other countries and many institutions, including the World Bank. Now, of course, we need to make sure that that is also reflected in the actual reforms of the bank that will take place uh, hopefully this year. So I know I was at an event yesterday where you spoke about uh, education yeah. and climate change and also talked quite a bit about the, the relevance of gender sure. equality in thinking about climate yeah. adaptation programs. So could you say a bit about you know what you see as kind of the thematic areas mm -hmm. that are your priorities over the next couple of years? I would love to do that. Before, before I get to that, maybe I can start by talking a little bit more in depth about one of them, which is exactly the one that you mentioned, the interconnection between climate change, education, and women and girls' rights. I was recently in Ethiopia. This is a country that is hit very hard by climate change already. Now, Afar region is the northern region of, of Ethiopia, is the hottest inhabited place on the earth. Now, this means that it is always a pretty tough place to live, and, and you will always face challenges being, for instance, a goat herd or having camels or being a small farmer in that, that part of the world. So they're tough people, right? But... Because of climate change, they're experiencing unprecedented droughts. So we have examples of even the camels dying from first. What happens then? Well, when poverty strikes these people and when their livelihoods are taken away from them, one of the first things that happens is that the kids, the children are prevented from going to school because the family simply cannot afford that luxury. They need to work and try and help subsidize the family in some some way. And this is very often something that is especially happening for the girls. Sometimes even we know from many countries around the planet when poverty is, is a real problem and when families are put under pressure, uh, girls are very often married into other families at a very young age. So this shows you how interconnected this is. When we have serious problems that has always been serious and that are challenges that we know, being multiplied and being worsened by climate change, then obviously we need to also address this in, in a holistic way. So this means that, for instance, 
when we as a Danish government support a project where we make sure that there's better water management and that the camels actually have water to drink even when there's a drought, that is indirectly also helping more girls get to school because had the camels not survived, then the girls wouldn't have been able to go to school. So, of course, it's a very concrete and banal example, but it's a real one and it is actually the way the way things are. Now, on a more aggregated level, I think it's it's also clear that for many developing countries, when these catastrophes hit, like for instance in East Africa now, Malawi being hit by typhoons in an extent they've never tried before, what happens? Well, when the economy is destroyed, as is the case in Malawi right now, there's really not any room in the economy for prioritizing, for instance, education or, or other of the things that, that you would normally hope for a developing country to be able to invest in. Well, and certainly, I mean, you've talked a bit about, you know, the animals' access to water, yeah. but if girls are also being asked to walk further and further distances to get so, water, then they can't go to school, but they're also vulnerable to security and, and attacks and, and other challenges as well. Yeah, and, and also, that is a very good point. Uh, and you could even point to conflict in a more, no, I wouldn't say more serious way, because what you mentioned is also, of course, a real danger, and it does happen a Fortunately, to many girls around the planet, but we also see big conflicts where you know countries uh, are in war with each other, or groups within a country are in, in in conflict with each other because of the scarcity of resources. So, okay, what might spark a conflict, you could say, or or what underlies a conflict, will often be ethnical or political divides. But what they're actually then fighting about will often be resources, resources that will be more scarce because of climate change. And and what happens? In times of conflict, well, we know that uh, gender-based violence very often becomes more widespread. This is unfortunately what happens almost always in, in these types of conflicts. So I want to build on, you know, this discussion about water and gender and conflict to some extent. You know, earlier today, you convened a discussion around antimicrobial resistance. Yes. And climate change. And I mean, certainly coming out of the most acute phase of the COVID-19 pandemic, I won't say the pandemic's over, but mm. hopefully we're moving into a, a, you know, a less acute phase. But we've seen an increase in antimicrobial resistance, yeah. overuse of antibiotics during the pandemic. Of physicians didn't at first really know how to treat it. And of course, you know, well before 2020, antimicrobial resistance was already quite a big concern. Can you say a bit about how you see the AMR challenge linked to climate change. And as we think about better pandemic preparedness and response, we have a pandemic accord that's being negotiated, the pandemic fund. You know, what are some of the best options for addressing this linkage and really ensuring a focus on health and climate and AMR in this period? Well, antimicrobial resistant is already now a huge problem. Probably around 5 million deaths a year could be prevented if we were better at dealing with this uh, resistance. And if we had been better as a, as a global community at using our antibiotics in a more sustainable way. Now, both for humane purposes, but certainly also for veterinarian purposes, for decades Many countries, including my own, has been using antibiotics in ways that have led to this resistance, to the development of these AMRs. This, unfortunately, looks like a trend that is not going to disappear, and it's a danger that will only grow. So... What does it mean? Well, to bring it from an aggregated meter level into something that's very easy to comprehend and understand, I'll give you an example that I heard just yesterday from one of the speakers in the panel, a representative of the World Bank who told the panel that he had a personal friend who almost died from a 
very basic infection in his knee. So, you know, we, we are in a situation where already now people around the planet are dying from just real normal basic infections. And this can become much, much worse in the future. And if that is combined with the increasing danger of pandemics, imagine a pandemic where you're not able to treat the diseases because of resistance. Imagine that. That is potentially a huge, huge problem. Also, with regards to climate change, no doubt that the negative effects that climate change many places in the world has on health because people are, well, just the, the increase in poverty, we know, of course, this is well established in the science, leads to, to the lack of normal and most basic health benefits in most countries, goes without saying, spread of disease, all of these things. It's something that is very well known and that we, of course, are trying to deal with, but that is very difficult to remedy. At the same time, we know that people will often flee because of climate change, where they live, because maybe sometimes because of conflict, sometimes because they need to find other places to live and grow their crops or herd their animals. And when people flee, obviously that leads to conditions also that from a health perspective is very bad for them. And third thing I, I, I would mention in that regard is that also we know that climate change, of course, damages habitats and uh, biodiversity all over the, the world. That is also something that's not very good for the fight against the uh, MRs. So all in all, we need to have, I think, integrated strategies for dealing with them. Some of the strategies are strategies that try to address the problem when it's already there. Others are indirect in the sense that they are mostly really trying to fight climate change and other problems, but will indirectly also have positive effects on, on health. And the third types of strategies that we can deploy and that, that we need, I think, to, to develop is simply real targeted action that you can do already now. And, and as a country, Denmark, we are supporting and, and involved in many of these projects around the world. For instance, in food production, in many countries, it is possible to reduce the use of antibiotics actually dramatically without it influencing the, the output of the production. So as I understand it, I mean, among the tensions around research and development yeah. of new antibiotics, for example, I mean, if we have resistance in the ones yeah. that already exist, you know, there's this real tension between this emphasis on stewardship and not using them or not overusing them, and then any incentive that a company might have to develop a new antibiotic because if they sure. bring a product to market that it's not going to be used or they're not going to be able to test it, then it becomes a challenge. Denmark has spearheaded the launch of ICARS, is that how you say yeah. it? The International ICARS. Center for Antimicrobial Resistance exactly. Solutions. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Could you, you talked a little bit about you know, the mitigation side, but yeah. also some of the adaptation, but could you say a bit about where ICARS is working and, and why Denmark supports them? Well, ICARS is working, uh, fortunately, in many countries on the, the, in the world now, and, and they're working on very concrete ways of dealing with this problem. So in some countries, they are helping, for instance, bringing down the use of antibiotics in poultry production. Other countries, they're helping uh, hospitals implement routines that makes the patients less likely to be affected by AMRs. And what I think is good about this is that it takes a case-by-case -case approach, but at the same time, it's relying on the synergies that you may find when you work together across countries and using experts uh, from all over the world. Now, you spoke to something earlier that I would also like to just comment on, which is there might be some, some inherent problems in the market since when we are trying as politicians 
decision makers to get both on the veterinary side and on the humane side, the industries and, and the producers and the hospitals and the healthcare sectors to use less antibiotics? How do we then motivate the industry to actually produce more and new kinds of antibiotics? And that is a problem, but that's probably also why this is a political statement, I know, but I definitely think that is why maybe this is not best left to the market because maybe the market is not best suited mechanism to save the planet from AMRs. Probably not. I'm pretty sure that a lot of companies are making a lot of money selling uh, antibiotics that are actually ruining it for lots of people on this planet. So on the other hand, we do need a marketplace for medication and also antibiotic goes without saying that we do need the private actors. So I guess it's up to policymakers to make the regulations and the framework to make the market work for us and not against us. Well, and conceivably to incentivize creation of vaccines as well, oh, right, which can prevent yeah. the problem from the first place. That's a very good point also, yeah. So thinking about this connection between climate and health, it seems that now, I mean, certainly any meeting this week has touched on climate change in one way or another at the World Bank and IMF meetings. But it seems like it's kind of taken a while for the climate community to kind of think about health as being part yes. of the, the overall discussion. And in the meeting earlier, you know, sometimes you can go to a climate meeting and a health meeting and they might be talking about similar topics, but it's yes. a different set of people and different ministries and yeah. not a lot of overlap. Now, within the COP process, I know last year in yeah. Sharm el-Sheikh, I think it was the first time that the World Health Organization was really inside the blue zone. And there was discussion that this coming year, United Arab Emirates, that yes. there will be greater focus on health. But you've just hosted uh, a ministerial, the Copenhagen ministerial, to plan some of the discussions yeah. for the Dubai meetings later this year. And just, you know, if you could say a little bit about how the thinking about integrating health with mm. the climate policy discussions, you know, is going and where do you see that the communities have gotten it right and where, where can they do a better job? Okay, so, so to be honest, I, I don't think probably that we are quite there yet where you would say that these discussions are integrated in the COP process. Now, I'm a big proponent and believer, proponent of and believer in the COP process because this is really the place in the world that we have to make the right decisions as, on a global scale. I mean, when you think about it, more than 190 countries that make very far-reaching decisions on solving a planetary problem, it is actually incredible because... Every one of these countries has the veto power to say no. So how, I mean, even though it's going too slow and I would ask for more ambition and hope for more ambition and all of that, that, that goes without saying. Still, when you think about it, I don't think there's any other area in the world where more than 190 countries, I mean, imagine, just think about how difficult it is where if you're going to a restaurant with eight of your friends to agree on where you're going and what the menu is and who will pay and all of that. <laughs> that's just you and your friends. This is 190 countries with so different political systems, interests, and all of that. And we've agreed on the Paris Agreement. That's incredible. Having said that, we are still struggling to find consensus on some of the most basic issues. How much to reduce our emissions? Who will pay for it and how? These are the big questions, and they, they are the ones that also take up most of the discussions, obviously. That also then, of course, means that Focusing on, on, on some of the, the more detailed, uh, nuanced discussions, like, for instance, the interconnection between health and uh, climate change. It's probably not really where it needs to be yet, but progress has happened. And uh, as you said, in Sham last year, COP27, 
for me, it seemed like uh, there was a, a bigger acknowledgement that this is a discussion that's important and one that we need to make an integrated part of the negotiations also. So as we look ahead to the meetings in toward the last quarter of, of this year, yeah. you know, there's a lot of talk about partnerships and multi-sectoral work. You've talked about the important role that organizations like ICARS can play in really yeah. creating networks across countries of researchers and policymakers and others. But, you know, I wanted to ask you to reflect a little bit on the role that the private sector sure. can play, uh, both on the R&D side, but also on the adaptation side, as well as community organizations. You know, that was something that came yeah. up a bit in the education event yesterday, you know, the yeah. role that, that people on the ground can play. Where do you see private sector and civil society really advancing this discussion? Well, I think that when we look at the actual implementation of policies, whether that be policies from an organization like the World Bank or a country like Denmark, the instances where we see the most success, where it's really being most efficient, is when we work together with a civic society. So finding organizations in the countries where the, the projects are that are either NGOs, could also be uh, labor unions, it's just extremely important. They have the first-hand knowledge, of course, about the political systems, the cultural norms, uh, everything really that you need to know about in order to make a, a project a success. So that's important. Also for, I think, ideological, idealistical reasons. I mean, that's the only democratic way to really introduce very often measures in, in countries that have wide-reaching effects on people. And you, you need to include them somehow, and that's one way of doing it. Also, though, it's important to, to realize that very often, if this is to, to work, it's not enough that an organization like the World Bank gives a loan or a country like Denmark gives a grant, because if it is to be sustainable in the future, not only economically, but also environmentally from a cl climate perspective, you need it to be more focused on a long-term development. And if we want a long-term development, it's probably not sustainable to expect to get grants or loans every year or every 10 years or every 15 years. So you will need, or the best examples are, when you actually make it possible to leverage private investments. So examples of that, in Denmark, we spend some of our public grants for development policy in supporting projects where we have private companies and NGOs working together in, for instance, Kenya on having more sustainable banana production. So this is actually in my, it's not without difficulties, obviously, but in a sense, it's a perfect way of doing things because you both have a company with an incentive to make a business case for itself, create jobs, create growth in that uh, country. At the same time, you have uh, local uh, civic involvement that makes sure that it's also socially transparent and uh, socially sustainable and that has the expertise to actually make it work. Now, that I think is something that, that we need to do more uh, globally in development policy. Then, of course, there's the other aspect, which is on a more global scale. If we are to develop solutions, new antibiotics, ways of not using as many antibiotics, all of that, we need industry. I mean, let's face it, the medical industry have huge potential. Sometimes they act in a way that it's reasonable to criticize. Let's put it as a diplomat would phrase it. But there's also many examples. I would mention Novo Nordisk as, as a Danish company and a good example of of them actually also taking responsibility on their shoulders and working also philanthropically 
to try and and help prevent some of these problems. I mean, look at, at Novo Nordisk. They are, I'm not only saying this because I'm Danish, but it is quite incredible that we have a company that's making money producing insulin to treat diabetes. On the other hand, they're spending a lot of money also preventing uh, diabetes with philanthropic projects. So uh, when you have private interest and companies that are in there to make money, sure, that's the nature of a private business, but that also has a broader outlook on the world, then very often they will be able to move things. And and I have to say also being here this week in Washington, I've met a lot of philanthropies and a lot of funds that are spending billions in trying to to remedy some of the situations that we've talked about, solve some of the problems that, that we have and trying to prevent climate change and lead an adaptation and all of these things. So although I'm a social democrat and I believe in the role of a strong state and strong institutions, I also do acknowledge that private sector companies, philanthropy, all of these actors are extremely important. So really for sustainability, then you need not only financing from multiple sectors. The state can't do it alone. The country's domestic finance can't do it alone. But the private sector has, and philanthropy has a strong role to play. But the community can really help ground that and tailor solutions to the local conditions. So I realize that this particular role that you're in, you've maybe been there four months now or so. I know that you were working on these issues before. And if you could just reflect on you know, one or two policy changes that you really hope you can move forward as a yes. government in the next couple of years. Yes. So first thing I would mention is that we've decided we will continue using 0.7% of our gross national product for development aid. This is what the UN recommends. Uh, unfortunately, only a handful of countries in the world are actually living up to that. We will continue to do that. We think it is extremely important that developed countries help as much as we, we can. So that's that's probably the most important thing. But what will what will change and where we are looking to improve is that in line with the analysis that, that we made earlier, that really today most development policy is also about climate adaptation. And any sustainable development in a challenged country today in the global south will need to take into consideration that they will be hit by climate change. If they're not already now, which most of them are, it will increase in the future. So this needs to be reflected also, of course, in our own policies and the way we distribute our funding. And we've made a decision that 30% of our aid needs to be allocated for green purposes. 25% is for, for climate And out of that uh, amount, 60% of our climate finance is for adaptation. This is extremely important because even though it's difficult enough to mobilize financing internationally for mitigation efforts, that's, you know, for instance, uh, transition of energy systems and things like that, even though that's difficult enough, it's much more difficult to mobilize the financing for the adaptation projects because sometimes there simply isn't a business case there. It's simply a question about a country being hit extremely hard or region of a country being hit extremely hard by, by climate change and where we need to help now. Having, having said that, obviously our ambition is to develop policies, measures of implementation, methodologies, analysis that makes it possible to find scalability in the projects that we make. So that w- when we have a project in the FR region in Ethiopia that I talked about earlier, it should be one that can be replicated in other countries. Only if we do that, I think, will we manage to get to where we need to be. 
So this is both with regards to, of course, the actual solving of the problem on the ground, but it's also with regards to the model of how you do it and especially how you mobilize the finance to do it. So that will probably be our main focus. Now, a few other things I'd like to mention is uh, we will work even more closely with uh, NGOs and civil society in the countries where we are. We believe strongly in partnerships also between countries. So we are proud to have uh, created the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance. Uh, we share the leadership with uh, Costa Rica. Denmark was the first major oil producing country in the world. We were the biggest oil producer in the EU when we made the decision to decide to set an end date for the extraction of oil and gas. This is not a small thing in a country like Denmark. We've made a lot of money on oil and gas in the, in the past. And we want other countries to follow because if we are to fight climate change, we need to not only look at the demand side in the energy sector uh, of fossils, we need to also look at the supply side. I mean, most scientists will argue that around 50 or 60% of the known reserves of oil and gas needs to stay below ground if we are to keep increases below 1.5. Also, the GOVA alliance, which is a global offshore wind alliance, is one that we lead together with, with good friends. And it's an alliance that really aims to strengthen the development and spread of offshore wind. We were the first country in the world to build an offshore wind farm back in 1991. At that time, it was considered, I think, some people would probably think it was a, a bit of a crazy experiment because it was so expensive and difficult and complex. But today, of course, offshore wind... Um, is used all over the planet and and it very often is cheaper competes with uh, coal in price so that's that's amazing and we have such a huge potential the IEA estimates that we can cover the total electricity supply of on the planet with the wind resources 18 times so because we have a history because we have expertise on these areas we we feel obliged to also of course focus our work on spreading that technology and that knowledge so it's an ambitious agenda around mitigation and really promoting alternatives yeah. to kind of traditional energy extraction and use but also you know really looking at ways to more closely align the climate change adaptation and development agendas and really mm. kind of weave consciousness around adaptation into all aspects yeah. of, of the program. Well, Minister Dan Jurgensen, thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, we've talked about climate and health, the role of gender equality, and, and really thinking about climate adaptation, uh, and of course, the importance of partnerships and alliances for research and development, for promoting policy changes, and for implementing solutions at the community level and in the international scale. So good luck to you um, over the, the next period and really in the run-up to, to the next COP meeting. And thank you very much for agreeing to be the, uh, the podcast uh, interviewee for today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit CSIS.org.